Hi, I'm Nick Jacobs and I'm from London, England. I seek out adventures on motorbikes and capture them for your viewing pleasure. And these can be seen on my YouTube channel called Project Biker. Welcome back to the podcast. My name's Simon Josie and thank you for listening. We've all done it. We've all lost countless hours going down a YouTube rabbit hole, watching one video after another, losing all track of time, and emerging only when hunger, thirst, or some other bodily function demands our attention. It was one such session that resulted in my discovery of Project Biker, the YouTube channel of Nick Jacobs, another UK-based filmmaking motorcyclist. What caught my attention about the channel was how few videos had been published, how relatively few subscribers there were, yet how good the work was. In fact, I was suspicious that Project Biker might actually be the side project of a more prominent and prolific YouTuber. Needless to say, I was intrigued and immediately knew I wanted to talk with Nick. Fortunately for me and you as listeners, Nick was very gracious in accepting my invitation to come on the podcast. Before we get to my chat with Nick, I'd like to invite you, as always, if you have the time and inclination, to consider rating or liking the podcast in your favorite podcast app or on YouTube. This will help other listeners find the podcast. I post on multiple social media channels whenever new episodes of the podcast drop, so please do repost, reskeet, and retweet to help get the word out there about the podcast. Links to the podcast's socials can now be found in the episode notes. Righto then. Please now enjoy my discussion with Nick. Hi, Nick. Uh, Welcome and thanks for joining me on today's episode. How are you doing? Good, thank you. In April this year, you put up a couple of first posts to your YouTube channel and then a third followed in June. Then in October, you began dropping episodes of your series, The Off-Road to Monaco, which documents your trip from London to Monaco on sections of the TET, the Trans-European Trail, during the Northern Hemisphere summer of 2023. In the trailer for the series, you emphasise your lack of experience as an off-road rider, but after some casual internet stalking on my part, I've sort of come to the conclusion that you've been riding for a while. Can you tell us about your motorcycling history? Sure. Um, I'm now wondering what your what your stalking was and what you found out about me. Um, so I, uh, I guess I first got onto a bike when I was living in China many years ago, and I flew over to Cambodia with a friend. We rented out, um, I guess, what would be COF 250s, but they were called a Honda Reggae, I think. And we, without a license, very, very stupidly, without the right gear, only with a helmet that was rented, so we could have had a had a crack somewhere in it. We rode from Phnom Penh down to Sanokville, which I think is about 250 kilometers and back. And then when we got to the beach, my friend said, I'm done. That was dangerous. I'm going to relax here. And I said, no, I want more. And I went off on my, on my own. And I um, traveled into the jungle, got a bit lost, had a moment where I had ants crawling up my leg. Um, my water was finished. I had no phone signal. Had a bit of a moment, you know, um, and escaped, survived it, and thought, okay, well, that didn't kill me. You know, what's next? So when I came back to London, I wanted to do things properly and you know, go through the right licenses and the right and the right courses and get trained up, knowing that I'm a little bit reckless 
and can be a bit adventurous. So I think knowing that about me, I should probably seek out advice and go through things carefully. So I got myself a, um, what are they called now? They they changed their name recently, but it's the, it's the 125 from Honda. I forget the name. And I got that and I rode that to work every day for two years. On the, um, if anyone listening knows London, on the A40, which is no joke in the morning, um, filtering through traffic. And then eventually got myself some savings and I bought my first road bike, which is still here. It's a Suzuki SV650. Um, and again, rode that every day to work. But when I got that bike, I thought, right, now is the time to actually use it in a way that would be more exciting and go back to those early roots of exploring. So I took that bike all the way down to La Manga in Spain because my friend had a summer house there. And that trip was pretty ridiculous in terms of that bike was not suited for that, that sort of trip, but I did it anyway. And each year I would go back to the Alps and do other trips, but all on the road. So this video series was my first going off-road, which for me was very exciting. And um, if we talk about today, do you still do like daily commuting on the bike or is it something that is parked up in the garage and, and you only go out on nice days or how active a rider are you at the moment? Are you an all year round rider in London? I, I ride every day. If there's if there's ice, I still go out because I think, luckily for me, I'm not going on country roads. So if I was living out in the sticks more, I think it's much more dangerous. But the roads that I'm going on, if there are any dangers of black ice, I know the spots to avoid and I go them every day. But mostly they've already already been gritted and, and ridden on. Um, but yeah, all year round, I commute every day because the traffic in London is crazy. So that, yeah, my commute is cut down by... Yeah, more than half. And what about the filmmaking? When, when did that start? Uh, had you done any serious filmmaking before you got into mot motorcycling or, you know, before you started your YouTube channel? Yeah, I had. Um, nothing ever serious or corporate, but I've always been interested in it. I've always played around with things, um, various softwares, various apps. I believe I used Final Cut Pro or Final Cut Express I remember there was an app on the iPad which made trailers, which was really, really fun to use, like nice and quick. It's always been something that interests me. I think what I find most interesting about making videos is there's that moment when you have an image or, or a video, a, a moving image, and then you find the right music for it. And that moment when those, those two things connect and you're like, yes, this is the one that, it, I mean, there are 10 different songs that could match that video. But this song matches the feeling that I'm getting watching this video. And that moment for me has always been really, really exciting. I'm someone who's quite um, creative. I write stories and so on. So the idea of making movies is just like writing the story, but you can see it. So I've always been interested, but it's never been something that I've taken seriously until recently. And, and what made you want to try the off-roading? And, and to actually base your first major series on YouTube on something that you actually had no experience in? I guess for me, there needs to be some level of ridiculousness, I guess is a phrase I could use, or some level of risk for me to find the adventure exciting. You know, I feel uh, every trip that I've done, I mean, that, that first trip that I did to La Manga, there was 
absolute struggle on that trip. There were days, there were times when I was absolutely battered and bruised and tired and wondering what I was doing. But the moment of getting there was an achievement that has stayed with me. And it's something that I talk about. And I have forgotten the hard parts, but that moment of getting, of arriving to the beach, my friend was there and just running straight into the waves. That was exciting. So the spark for going off-road, I believe was when I discovered a video by, I think it's Adam Reedman or Reeman, I forget his name. And he had a video where he went to Norway and picked up a bike that he named the Warhorse. And it was an old Africa twin 750 that he found covered in dust in a garage. And he bought it, did it up, and then rode it to the top of Europe. And then found that when he got there, he couldn't part with it. And so decided to ride it back down Europe to London and then ship it back to Australia, where he's from. It wasn't just the fact that he did that, because there are many stories on YouTube of people doing similar things, but it was it was the way that he filmed it that I liked. It was clear that he had some skill in knowing what to include and what not, in how to be honest and open about what he was going through, the hard parts, the good parts. He didn't seem to come across as trying to project an image of himself that was fake. He was just telling it like it was. But he also interspersed moments where he brought in some music in a way that excited me because, as I said before, I really like to think about what music fits that that moment. But then in that trip, he mentioned the TET, the TET, which is the Trans-European Trail. And I thought, well, what is this thing? And so I researched it. And as soon as I went to that website where they have all the maps and so on, I was hooked. I thought, this is something that I can get in with. And so I began to research it. And as I mentioned in that trailer, I began to research the gear, the bikes, you know, the routes, not because I was planning to go, just, you know, what's it like? And then, of course, that leads to other things. And then suddenly I was there buying a bike. And then suddenly I was there on the on the motorway going into Europe. Certainly, that's that's what I've picked up because I've watched all the episodes that have been released to date. And sort of themes of vulnerability and adversity, overcoming adversity, failure, overcoming failure, loneliness, loneliness on the road. You were very open about that. And it did strike me that you've been very deliberate about that. Um, I think it, it, it's fair to say that the Off-Road to Monaco series displays a, a remarkable ambition for someone who had previously only published three other videos on YouTube. And that sort of triggers a whole lot of questions in, in my mind. Um, how did you initially conceive of the idea for for the series, for, to, to, to take the, the Tet down to, to Monaco? What was the in, initial idea there? It's a, good, it's a good question, actually. I'm not, it's hard to think exactly what sparked it because there were so many different things that happened. It sort of snowballed, you know? It snowballed from just looking around, from thinking about what what's possible. I think... I came across, I'm not sure if you've heard of them, the Lightweight Adventurers. They have a YouTube channel. Um, it's two guys, um, very relatable, just standard English guys who are being very, very open and honest about their experiences, not trying to trying to put on a show, you know, which is what I relate to. Um, and they did a video series where they, they went down to the Tabernas Desert in Spain. And it was very clear that, that, that it was their first time doing that sort of thing and they had no idea what they, what, what they were doing. They'd, they'd had more off-road experience, but going that far was new to them. So that was fun to watch. And they released it as a series. And 
I guess that made me realize, oh, I could actually just do a series of, of videos rather than one big long one. So the concept of a video series was sparked there. And the idea to go down to Monaco wasn't in my head, um, as you would have seen perhaps in episode six or five, six, I believe. Um, I didn't think about going to, to Monaco until I was in some random wild camping spot and thought about, well, if I go east from here, which at that time was in Italy, the Alps in Italy, so west, northwest Italy, I thought if I go east now, that means I have to go over what I hear is a lot of on-road routes and then up through Austria and Switzerland. And those apparently are quite also um, not really off-road tech routes. So I thought, well, what else? And then it was funny because I posted, um, was, I was about to post on the, the uh, Facebook group for the uh, tech and then someone had literally just posted that same question, exactly that same question, which, you know, it's those little coincidences which you just couldn't write that sort of um, story. And everyone who responded said, go south. So I was like, okay, I'll go south. Um, but my decision to head towards the Alps was because I just love the Alps. I've been there at least five times now on the road bike. But when I'm there on the road bike, you always see these little paths, these little routes, and you think, what's down there, you know? And then also on the road bike, I'm with the crowds and the other people. And I always felt like I wasn't really finding my people when I was on these trips because everyone else was 60 years old on bigger bikes. And it was very rare that I would just meet someone, A, from London or from the, from the UK, but B, just on a bike, on their own, going down there. And everyone was much more prepared and older than me. So... Yeah, I just thought, right, now it's time to go back there, but off-road. So, yeah, I remember the, the episode and when you you, you you sort of made this this switch or you decided in the fork in the road which way you would go. So that sort of leads my, to my next question, which is to what extent did you pre-plan the whole enterprise? And I'm not just talking really about the route, but I'm talking about the the video series concept. To what extent had you planned out what you thought the story was going to be or did you literally just go off capture a whole lot of footage and and think right when i get home i'm going to make something out of this the second one yeah <laughs> it was it was that it was um so i had done my research um i had done my research into everything i needed to um in terms of gear route bike and so on that was an extensive amount of time i mean at some point, you know, you're enjoying the research, aren't you? You you enjoy that process. I did definitely obsess it for a while. But in terms of the decision-making in, in the filming and the crafting or the sculpting of the series, I knew that I wanted to capture certain types of footage. I knew that I wanted, obviously, to have the helmet cam always on or, as I later found out, on when I knew there was likely something to be to be shown because of the amount of storage it was it was um, taking up, I had my 360 camera with me too, but I used it much less because I was a bit disheartened with the quality that you get from that camera. Um, although in hindsight, I wish I had recorded much more because it would have been really good to see me more. And then, and then the drone, the drone was a big part of the trip because it's quite hard to do. It's quite hard to pull over, get the drone out, not disturb anyone, and then also try and capture yourself 
riding on the bike as well. It's quite a challenge, but I figured out a few a few systems that I can I can talk through later if you want. But I very much just tried to capture as much as I could. And then I knew that, and I was saying this to my own, my own girlfriend, when I, when I go back and I look through the videos, first of all, it's like experiencing the trip for a second time because you're going through everything and some of the things that, you've, that happened, you've forgotten and you re-experienced them. But also you're chiseling away. It's like, it's like having a big chunk of clay and you're just cutting away this part, cutting away this part, sculpting what the model should look like. And you're searching for the story. That's what I found. You're searching for the story in the videos. But yeah, it was just very much go out there, film, and then hope that I can make it something good later. Your voiceover narration plays a significant role in the series. Was that always your intention? I think from watching the videos made by Adam Riemann, he utilized the voiceovers a lot. And that was my inspiration for adopting the same style. I... What I liked was he was able to string things together into a narrative, but might not have thought of saying those things in that in that moment. And it was similar to the effects that you get. I'm only actually realizing this now that I say this to you. It's similar to the effect that you get when you try to match the video to music. When you add the voiceover, it's also an extra element that just changes the feel of that of that video moment because you're adding this narrative that the viewers know is being said by this third party voice that that just comes over and it definitely creates this new newer dynamic i had planned to record my voice in the helmet but on the very first day i realized the cable wasn't working and i planned to get a new cable and i kept on searching for one couldn't find one and then just gave up and thought well i'll I'll piece the narrative together using the voiceover technique. But it was something that was daunting to me to then have to go back and record my voice after, but I feel like I've got a lot better at it as this series has gone on. In terms of of writing the narrative, when did that actually start? Did that start when you got back or were you already, as you were writing, thinking this could be a story, this could be the story, This these are the possibilities? I mean, how active were you thinking about that during the trip or did it really all happen when you came back did you think i'm not even going to think about it i'm going to enjoy the ride take some video and then when i get back i'm going to find the story out of what i've shot i think it was mostly film as much as i can and then worry later yeah it really was um of course there were there were moments when I was conscious that I was recording and I should try and show something or say something here. But most of the, I mean, it was just survival. I was, I was far too busy to try and think about narratives. I was, I was too busy concentrating on, on the ride, not falling over um, and enjoying myself. So letting my mind wander, perhaps subconsciously, I was thinking about the narrative, but it wasn't a conscious thing. I, I trusted myself that when I came back, I'll be able to to find the narrative in these videos. You mentioned that you've done some writing. Did that give you the confidence that, that you'd be able to find the, the narrative in the footage? Yeah, perhaps. I think, I think as I was saying before, the, the story's in there. The story's there. It's, it's, it's happened in the videos. There is a narrative there. So as long as I just experience things as honestly as I can and capture as much as I possibly can, then 
it won't be hard because there is a story in there. I just have to find it. And so, yeah, from having previously written things myself and knowing myself that I'm someone who can very happily go back and edit, 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 and dive really deep into something to try and make it flow. I knew that I would be willing to spend that time to search through things. Uh, it just, I'm just a little bit interested in what kind of writing you've done because I find at times, and and I think it's almost in your delivery as well with the voiceover, um, some sequences or, or yeah, yeah, some sequences of the narration are, are quite poetic. Is that the kind of writing you've done, or is it is it more long form fiction writing that you've done previously? So. Um, my father was a journalist, so I was always instilled with a bit of an interest in the written word and being concise and omitting needless words, all those all those classic style things. My own writing, I've enjoyed writing some fiction. I've not really done much with it in terms of getting it out there. I've just enjoyed doing it. I actually wrote one called uh, Biking with Bread, which was kind of a travel comedy about that trip that I mentioned before to, um, to uh, Cambodia, where... We went out there, and so I wrote that into a story that I just shared with my friends, you know, for fun. Um, and I also, while I was in China, I wrote for the local magazine. I did the back page uh, column about life as a foreigner in China. So, I've, so I've always been interested in trying to weave a, a narrative or spin a narrative from what's going on. But yeah, it's definitely been more long form. But I would say there's poetry in long form, isn't there? There's, you know. And I mentioned before, I, I do obsess about things sometimes. So there's that there's those times when I've taken a sentence and really thought, what is what what are the three different ways to write this and what would be the one that would just flow into the next the best? But yeah, it's something that I've definitely taken an an, an interest in before. I'd like to ask you some some questions about the equipment you're using, the, the audiovisual equipment and, and your mm -hmm. audiovisual capture setup. So you mentioned a chin mount. So can you tell us what cameras you're using and what you use for B-roll, what type of drone you've been using as well? Sure. So the the chin-mounted camera um, that I use is a GoPro, I believe a 9. I bought it for this trip off eBay. I wanted to find the, the, the cheapest camera that had 4K. That was it, just 4K, and GoPro have very good stabilizing features. And while some of their cameras have had reliability issues, then the the nine didn't. So that was my one to get. So that was bought. Um, I used a very interesting chin mount called, I think it's called Django, D-A-N-G-O. It's a very interesting chin mount because it just comes under their helmet and grabs onto the helmet. Um, so it just comes under their helmet and it grabs onto it. And it means that I can very easily put it in, but also take it out, flip it up and use it for B-roll. So you'll notice that I, in the uh, series, I film myself taking the shoes off every day. Um, yeah, <laughs> just because it was a thing that I did on the first day. So I thought, well, I'll just keep on doing it every day and just use that as my sort of transition. But that was what I used there. I just had the, the same mount that I used in their helmet. I put it on the floor, flipped it up, and I was good to go. So that was my GoPro. I also had my Insta360 X2 with me that I use for some B-roll. There's a few um, sections in the series, but not as many as I would have liked. Um, in hindsight, I wish I had used it more. 
and I could have just had it on my handlebars always filming. So the next time I definitely will do that. It's a great device. And then I had a DJI Mini 3 Pro that I bought in April. Um, that was my drone footage. And what a drone that is. It's a, it is fantastic. For audio, as I said before, I did have a microphone in the helmet, but it didn't work. So there was no audio captured. And, and once you got back and started with the post-production, did you find that you were missing any coverage? Like, did you think, ah, oh, you know, I, I wish I'd captured this or taken this angle or a bit more B-roll here or something? Did, did you find in the post-production phase, did you, did you have any frustration with not having quite the coverage that you needed to, to fill the story out? Always the bad times are not filmed enough. Always. It's always the way you are. You film the good moments because it's fun, and you think this is this is this is the best. But you don't realize to show the struggle, and I do show the struggle. I think in some parts, but there's always more. The first three days, where I'm trying to head south to escape the rain, was traumatic. It was awful on a Honda CRF 300 on motorways in the rain, all day riding with that seat. The stock seat is painful. The windshield is just low enough so that it buffets into my face. It was painful, but I didn't record any of it except for one time when I pulled over and just stared into the camera and just said, like, that was brutal or something. So I feel I wish I had got I had captured more of that to show the struggle. But for the rest of it, it was a shame I didn't have a helmet microphone working. So that's something that I'll fix for the next one. But no, I, I feel pretty pleased. I think there were certain sections when I was low on memory that I had to just skip capturing. There was one moment where I was completely lost on a, on a hillside, um, which would have been good. But on the whole, I'm quite pleased with how much content I captured. I came back with 1.5 terabytes, I believe, of footage. So yeah, that was quite a job to organise. So you mentioned that you hope to sort out these in-helmet uh, microphone issues for the next trip. Is there anything else that you've got your eye on in terms of camera kit that you'd like to take on the road? Or, or do you feel that your current solution actually has got you well covered? I guess um, I would probably upgrade to the Inter360 X3. Um, if my X2 breaks, right now there's no need to. I think the, the jump in quality between the two, two, two cameras I don't think warrants an upgrade unless they bring out an X4. So that's something that I'm looking at. Um, because one of the one of the problems with the 360 camera is it is filmed in 5.7K, but then when you reframe it, you just choose one rectangle from that 360 sphere. So that one rectangle comes out at 1080p, which is a stark difference to 4K. So when you're changing shots, the quality drops a lot. But now I realize for B-rolls, no one's going to care or notice. And especially if it's filming myself and filming my, my reactions to things, it's perfectly fine. So that is a regret of mine. That is the biggest regret. I didn't use that camera more. In terms of other gear, um, I've already bought the helmet microphone. It's, I, I bought the DJI wireless microphone. There's two in the little box. Um, and so that's going to be used for the, for the next one. Hadn't been tested yet, but that's ready to go. I don't think there's anything else maybe i would like to have another action cam facing me all the way 
because that would be a lot easier, and then also have a 360 camera. Um, but I think at that point, it gets a bit excessive in terms of the time spent capturing and, and filming. But I'm quite pleased with what I have. I think if I have the 360, if I have the action cam facing forwards and the drone, I think you can you can capture a lot. As we speak, you're still working on your first series, The Off-Road to Monaco. Mm-hmm. What's been your biggest discovery or surprise in terms of the post-production process? Ah, oh, wow. That process. I mean, do you want to hear my process? It's... I, actually, that was one of my questions is, you know, have you have you figured out an efficient workflow? Because I'm, I'm really interested to know how long it takes for you to create one episode. So, yeah, please tell me about your workflow and, and, and what you've discovered. It takes a long time. I don't actually know how, how long it takes because it all blurs together the amount of time that I'm sat there with uh, the software. So, so, so I use Premiere Pro for my um, editing and I had some experience of that before, so I wasn't going in cold. But my process that I found worked for me, the most important part was because I wasn't able to name the files as I was out on the trip, I didn't have any laptop with me, um, so I didn't have any way to group them and organize them. I came back on the first day that I began the process. I spent the whole day going through all the footage and organizing it by name. So that meant day one, time, and then what's happening in that video. Sometimes it was a specific riding past cows because it was a very, very short one. And sometimes it was leaving a certain city and that, you know, eight minutes long. So I spent the whole day doing that for the action camera, on the helmet, for the drone footage, um, for the for the 360. And that was a whole day's work, just naming the files. But doing that meant in the moment of editing, I was able just to flow. I didn't have to spend time searching for, for things. I think it's really important that that is done on the first day before anything is started in its entirety, because as you saw in the trailer, I was capturing moments from the very end of the trip, but showing it at the start. And also by doing that, it meant that I was aware what footage I had. So I had gone through and just done a bit of a, what's the right word here? Reflection, I guess, evaluation on all the footage there. And that helped me to start to scribe subconsciously to start to craft what the story might be. So a really boring but crucial step was that the next step is getting everything onto the timeline in, in, in Premiere Pro. I like to throw it all in there. So all I have, I have one video, video um, channel for the action camera, one for the drone, um, and just get it all in there. And then, as I mentioned before, I like to start chiseling away. So cutting things down, going into certain clips and thinking what what is dead space and what can be used. And I really enjoy that process of that timeline just getting shorter and smaller and I can zoom in more. And then I end up with, you know, 10 to 12 clips that I know all have valuable footage in them. And then it finally comes that moment where I can start to actually make the story to choose what comes first. But one of the biggest things that I spend my time on is searching for the song. I find that is epic in how much time I spend doing that. That, in fact, was going to be my next question. How do you integrate that into the creative process, the the finding the music, and then 
do you cut to the music or do you cut first and then try and bring the music to to the cut? I mean, how how have you been working? I I, I want to mention for listeners one of the I think it might have been the second or third video you actually posted to YouTube, which was the 120 shoulder checks in two minutes, which I really like. And I think the music is so well paired to the video or the video is so well paired and cut to the to the music. What did you do for this series? How did you how did you bring the music in? What what's yeah, what's your workflow in terms of the music? Yeah, that video was a beast. Um I did that video more just because I I had that concept of matching a beat to the shoulder checks that I do on the bike. And then once I started, I had to finish it. Um, so it's a fun video. This process, so I, I currently use Soundstripe, which is an um, online platform which gives you royalty-free music for a cost, and I pay a monthly subscription. Um, and I get the footage to the point in the timeline where I've only got the valuable footage there. Maybe I've started to piece things, things together, but usually not. Usually I, I just know what valuable footage I have. Then I go into Soundstripe and, I, and I, they have a really cool feature um, called the AI search where you can type in, find me motorbike videos that are inspiring, um, but about music that is inspiring. And you have to use the word inspiring, otherwise they'll give you lots of angry music because apparently motorbikes are angry. And once you do that, yeah, I found some really cinematic pieces of music. And what I found is I would play the song, flip to my video software and just watch different parts of the clips, parts of the parts of the footage with that song playing and see how I felt, see what impact it gave, and then do a different song and try again, different song and try again, different song, and then favorite some songs and build up a bit of a playlist of my favorite songs. And some songs I knew I would use, but not for that video. I was like, no, this is far too epic. This is gonna be used later on. But some some of them are like, hey, this is a contender. And then finally, once it clicks, and you know when it clicks, it just it just seems to fit. Uh, once it clicked, I said, okay, this is the song. Download it, throw it into the Premiere Pro software, and then I would match the video footage to the song. The song was the key. I felt it was the driver. Sometimes there would be video footage that I wanted to get in there, and the song wasn't quite long enough. So sometimes I would cut the song up. Um, so I could repeat certain sections of it and make it a bit a bit longer or shorter. But in the main, I, I have the song be the driver. The music is, is the driver. And I would then zoom in very, very close and I would cut the clips to the point in the song where the music changes or there's a beat, um, but have the music be that driving factor. Mm. Yeah. Just back to the, the drone, because you mentioned it earlier and, and I, I wanted to follow up. One thing that I thought was particularly ambitious was uh, the follow me or the tracking footage, particularly when you're riding through forest or forest tracks, and and I thought that's ambitious. And I, you know, I had to ask, how many drones did you lose to the forest, or were you were you did you manage to avoid any sort of crashes? I have crashed that drone several times. Um, DJI, I, I'm a big fan of of um, DJI. I think they are a very effective company both in the research they clearly do for their their devices but also in their customer care as well they um they are very quick to give you a new drone if you break one 
as long as you can prove you, you weren't doing something crazy with it and their care refresh as well. So I have been, I've only changed drone once and that was in the first three days of, of um, having one. I, I crashed it like twice and then sent it back and they, and they uh, changed it for me. But in terms of the trip, the, the, the Mini 3 Pro has a sensor uh, function where as long as you're not going sideways into something, it can see and it will navigate around branches for you. I was really nervous about this feature. I, I tried it out on obvious structures and it seemed to work, but more and more I, I, I gained confidence and trust in the drone being able to handle. And I think one time I flew it and didn't realize that there were some trees around. And when I watched the footage back quickly, I realized it had gone through those trees perfectly it was that moment when I thought, okay, I can actually perhaps trust this device more. That as long as I'm going forwards, it will go. It will go around things. So there were no crashes whatsoever with that drone on that trip. It performed wonderfully. The only risk with the Mini Three is if you are flying sideways. But that problem, I believe, has now been fixed with the Mini Four because that has sensors all around it. So I would love to get get one of those, but. As I was saying before, with the X2 to the X3 for the 360, it doesn't feel worth it to go up just one level. I'm going to wait for the next one. The process of, of using the drone was an interesting one. It started off with the drone in my bag on the back. I kept it in the bag on the top of the bike rather than the side, because obviously if I crash, the sides will get hit. But then I would stop, go to the bag, take it out of the bag, you know, on the ground, fly it up, do my thing, stop the bike, get off the bike, get the drone back in their bag. It became a whole thing. After a while, I I realized I could actually just have the drone in my pocket of my of my jacket, which was some risk, but I had a, a cover over the camera, over the gimbal. So I would take the drone out from my pocket and I would lean down onto the floor and drop it onto the floor and then fly it from there and then lean down again to pick it up again. So that worked fine. Um, and then I realized, and this is the best part, I actually can launch it from my hand. So I would just hold it up, launch it, it would fly off. I would do my thing and then I would call it back. And with the Mini 3 Pro, if you, or and probably most drones, if you then land them and as it's coming down, you hold them from underneath, you can flip them over and that will kill all the motors immediately and it stops so my whole process of filming the drone footage by the end of the trip was from the bike i didn't leave the bike at all wow that must have um improved productivity sub substantially i imagine yeah absolutely so um i'm doing a, a, a new trip soon which i can i can tell you about later but i'm gonna have the drone now in a tank bag right right in front of me i can just fly it from there yeah so in terms of the overall process, pre-production, shooting, post-production, which part do you most enjoy? Which part is the least enjoyable for you? Least enjoyable thumbnails. It's not because I don't like making them. I mean, that's fun and it's important, making a, making a, good, a, good, you know, a good thumbnail. But by that point, that moment is after I have exported the video, after spending hours and hours making it. I've uploaded it onto YouTube. I've written the title based on my limited knowledge of what titles would 
would work and I definitely need to learn more about what works. I've done the tags. The last thing I want to do then is go and actually have to make a thicker, thicker thumbnail, but it's, it's crucial. And actually, as I say this to you, I realized perhaps I should start making the thumbnail earlier in the process. So I have more creative energy because uh, at that point, I'm just done with it. Um, so thumbnails are currently my least favorite thing. Um, I guess organizing files is never going to be glamorous, is it? Um, but that is a crucial part, so I, I'm happy to do it. But most enjoy, I guess I have a love-hate, I have a love-hate relationship with finding the music because there are some times when I spend so long, I think, what am I doing? I've just spent all my Sunday morning searching for one song for one minute of video. What am I doing? But I love it, though, because that moment when I do find it is all worth it. It's the same thing with the with the uh, trip, isn't it? It's that that struggle to get there. You have to go through that struggle because it's worth it when you do. If I just chose the first song, it wouldn't be the right vibe that I was going for. So finding music is... <laughs> Um, can be a challenge. I guess I guess I enjoyed that moment of watching it back. I must admit to watching back my... Some people don't watch their own videos or don't listen to their own songs. No, I do. I definitely do. I I don't know why. It's just I get a lot of enjoyment of watching my own, my own videos back because I made it and I can learn something new. And I think one of the crucial things about um, being, being um, creative in any way is that you make something, watch it, but then give yourself a bit of time. Give yourself a day's break, come back and watch it again because you always see it differently. Um, and I've really enjoyed just watching the timeline back several times myself. I think it's it's fair to say, you can disagree if you want, but you're sort of at the start of your journey as a YouTube creator, if, if you're happy with that term. I'm not sure everyone is, but okay. How is the experience of of publishing to YouTube been so far for you? It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. I have had to check myself in terms of how often I check the YouTube studio app. In the early days, it was quite exciting to get a new view or a new subscriber. And I found myself in my free time just going in every hour and checking the app to see what's what's changed. And I could feel myself, you know, unhealthily getting addicted to that that process to, to those changing numbers so i definitely slowed that down but the most exciting part of it has been the comments there have been some fantastic comments written that it's just such a thrill to see because yes it would be great if this channel can become a success it means that i can i can travel more i can make more videos but also one of the parts of making it that excites me is it might inspire other people and I definitely hammer that point home that it doesn't need someone to be riding bikes from 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 a, from a young age anyone can do it so I've enjoyed those videos where someone says oh I'm thinking about doing this but I'm not too sure but now I've seen you I've seen you do it I might try um one comment someone said something really cool they said oh my god now I can tell my grandchildren that when I subscribed to Project Biker, there were less than 500 of us. And <laughs> I thought that was a really cool comment. Um, and because I'm selling myself as a novice off-roader, and also I didn't really make it clear that I was experienced on the road as well. Many people are coming in with, with advice and tips, but what I like about how they're doing it is on the internet, 
it's very easy to to come across poorly because they they can't see your expressions, they can't hear your voice. But people are taking the extra effort to be kind and careful with their words and give and give tips. I've I've had almost no negativity whatsoever, apart from one person who said um, the description doesn't match what I expected, and I was like, okay, you know, that's a that's okay. Um, but yeah, it's been really fun to see how excited people have been to watch the videos. I enjoy that a lot. Do you have any sense yet from what's what's working in, t- in terms of the the individual episodes? What's working? What isn't working? Based on feedback and and YouTube analytics? Yeah, some. I think my earlier videos, I was getting too into the cinematic aspects of things. I was enjoying that matching the video to the music too much. I think, and I was making things perhaps a little bit too epic, too visual. Since then, I've learned that it's the narrative that is the key. And also, it's okay to just show some footage of me riding. Before that, I was I was worried that I couldn't ever do that. I had to have some music or, or something happening. I couldn't just show riding for a long segment. But I realized people just want to know what it feels like to be on the road. All those sounds, all the 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 engine noise, and have an extended period of weaving through the roots. That was important too. So I began to incorporate more more of that as well. And I think if I can ha- next time have the voice in the helmet, I'll be able to do that because I'll be able to speak to people while while actually riding too. So that has seemed to be to be a feature um, that I've worked on. Yeah. As we speak, you're still doing the post-production on the off-road to Monaco and, and releasing new episodes. What does the future hold? Uh, can you know, What can we expect from you in the future in a similar vein of the kind of, of videos you've been making? What, what are you planning? What are you dreaming of at the moment? Well, the CRF 300 that I bought for the trip. So I bought that bike because I was considering... I wanted to do an off-road experience. However, I wasn't going to commit to buying a bike because where I am in London, there's nowhere to go really off-road or there's some places, but it's very, very limited. So I looked at renting, but renting off-road is a big challenge because there's so much risk to the bike and the cost of it was getting quite high. So I thought, well, I'll just buy a bike and then I'll sell it and I'll buy a really popular bike. And when I bought it, the Sierra 300 was very hard to find. It was very, very popular. There was quite a high demand and low stock. So I thought I can probably sell it quite easily. So it should be sold right now, to be honest, but it's not. It's still out there in the garden. Um, in fact, yesterday I was working on it because I'm going back out there. I have a trip planned that I'm leaving, if all things go to plan, next Thursday. I'm going to go to the south of Spain to hopefully escape the cold. Although yesterday I was looking at temperatures and it is still cold there, but I'm ready for it. Because my girlfriend's away this winter, my family are here, but I've had many a, a you know, Christmas time with their family. I just think while the bike's here, while I have some free time and while the channel seems to be gaining some traction, let's just keep things rolling. Let's just see what happens. And I've been having doubts, to be honest, about it because it's a bit crazy. It's going to be cold and it might not be fun. And on Christmas Day, I could be alone and New Year's Eve and so on. But then when I go back 
to watch the videos and listen to myself speak. I almost, I'm almost being reminded by myself, you know, like that's the whole point. It's not meant to be all good, but if you just commit and go to it and go for it, there will be some good that comes out of it. So I'm going to go. And yeah, that's when it happens. So there'll be a new series coming soon, um, which will probably have snow and we'll see. And then beyond that, I think, um, so I, I work in primary education, which means that I get 13 weeks off a year, but I can't choose those weeks. They are at set times. So the next time that I'd have some time would be the February half term and then the Easter holiday for two weeks and so on and so on. So I think it's it's likely that I'll be using the majority of those slots to go on more trips. My girlfriend rides. She hasn't got her bike yet, but she rides. Um, so there may be, she may be featured soon um, if I can convince her to try off-road, which currently is a, is, is a hard no, but maybe she will. And then I'm looking at other creators too, and I'm seeing what they do. And I can see that reviews are something that get a lot of views. I'm not fully sold on that being a direction that I want to take. As yet, I think building narratives is what excites me the most. But if my my thoughts on the product or my thoughts on um, the process are useful, I think I, I perhaps would make videos in the future on the process that I go through, if that's useful, perhaps less so on reviewing um, things. Even though those videos get a lot of traction, I feel it's quite dead traction. It's not people that come back to your channel unless you are a regular reviewer. My main thing is storytelling. So I think that's what I'm going to be focusing on. And and who who do you take inspiration from, particularly in this sort of motorcycle filmmaking space? Who do you think has influenced you? Who would you encourage others to, to also watch? You know, I should give a shout out to someone that massively um, inspired me that I've just, I, I've almost forgotten, but um, I do want to mention there is a wonderful video by a YouTube channel called Sam Pacheco, P-A-C-H-E-C-O. He only has four videos, um, but one of his videos has 29,000 views and it's an epic 15-minute video. I forgot, but but just now when you um, said it, I realised that video um, is called Solo Riding Across Europe and the Trans-Euro Trail. I actually reached out to Sam after I watched it and just said that was amazing and we had a bit of a chat via, via email. Um, but that was a big inspiration in terms of he is clearly someone who puts the same amount of time that I put into crafting something powerful. So that's a little quirky one because it's not really a YouTuber. He's only got four, um, but it's worth watching that one as a hidden gem on YouTube. And I'm just having a look now, actually, at my um, subscriptions and just seeing who I go to the most. Um, you have to mention Itchy Boots. Um, what she's doing is fantastic. Um, she's very, very popular. And I think she's popular because... She is very open and, and honest. Of course, she's brave. She's going into places like, like India, Africa, and, and filming there. She doesn't do the, the same level that I do in terms of video editing, which is probably why she can be so prolific in how much she puts out. But it, it's working for her, which is great. Um, I mentioned before the lightweight adventurers, who are just a couple of guys who are very, very, very relatable and fun to watch. Adam Reedman, as mentioned, is doing great things. Um, he's a similar age to me as well, so I relate to him in that aspect, but I don't relate to him in terms of how experienced and how good a rider he is. I'm nowhere near that. Um, 
just trying to think if there's any anyone else that really stands out. There's there's lots that I I I watch, but if I was to mention more, I think I would be just filling time. I think those are the main ones that really inspire me. Um, of course, there's Fortnite. Fortnite's videos are just outstanding and you can't go to any of those videos and not have a hundred comments where people just mention just how good the production is and how inspiring it is they are elite in my opinion in terms of motorbike footage um they really invest time in both the crafting and these the production of their content so yeah they're, they're really good finally and i always like to ask this question does the filmmaking enhance or diminish the pleasure of a motorcycle ride? And I think I'm going to know how you answer this because you, you sort of mentioned it before, but I want to give you another opportunity to answer that question. It's funny, actually. I was thinking about this before we started today because I remembered someone had commented on one of my videos saying, yeah, yeah, this is great, but just go out there and just experience it. Don't worry about all the all the filming, you know, go out there and be and be at one or whatever, be free with it. I've done that. I've I've done a lot of that. I've I've been into the Alps. I've um, several times, um, at least four. I've done long trips where I've just experienced it, and that's fine. But for me, what now excites me is the challenge of a getting somewhere, and then b coming back and delving into that massive bag of content and finding the story in there. That for me is fun. I feel, I feel like as I was going through my trip recently, I was getting more and more efficient with how I was filming. So I was spending less time worrying about the angles and so on, um, especially with the drones. So I didn't feel personally like it took away from my trip. It, only delayed my trip. It only meant that I spent more time each day and covered less distance because I would stop more often. But um, no, I don't feel that it stops the feeling at all. It probably enhances it because I'm actually stopping more to look at things to see if I should include them or not. Thanks for being my guest today, Nick. Other than your YouTube channel, is there anywhere else people can find you online? There is an Instagram under the same name, Project Biker. But to be honest, it's not something that I actively update. Um, I find Instagram a bit too showy. I think it does have its place. It's it's great. Um, but for, for, yeah, for me, I think YouTube is the place to find me. Great. That's it for today. I, I look forward to watching more Project Biker videos as they appear online, and I'm particularly interested in charting your popularity and success. Cheers, Nick. Thanks, Simon. <laughs>